Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Doing really well. Uh, I've got a cat on me. I hear you have a dog on you. I have a little doggy next to me, yes, having a snooze. If you're a patron of the cast and you want to see Webster... I've put pictures of him in our Cats and Dogs channel, so you can see he's come to visit. He's my sister-in-law's dog, and I'm looking after him today. Well, I don't know whether the, the, the microphone might pick up Monty purring, um, but I'm yeah. sure it'll add a nice ambiance. <laughs> if there's suddenly a point where there's hissing of cats and barking of dogs, <laughs> we'll know that the show's been fully taken over by our animal friends. Kind of fitting if we're yeah, going into um, so, yeah. nature. Yeah. So what are we talking about this week, Frank? This episode is in preparation for Feast of Hemlock Vale. And I said to you, Peter, what's folk horror? As a kind of <laughs> casual thinking that you might explain that to me in a sentence or two. And that has prompted for us qu- quite a lot of research, I would say, for us in terms of trying to answer that question. Yes. So in this episode we're going to talk about folk horror which we believe is one of the kind of themes or one of the um guiding principles for the feast of hemlock vale campaign expansion that is soon to come out and we're going to share some of our finding with you the listener and see what's the connection between folk horror and lovecraft and cosmic horror and are they connected and all of that kind of thing yes Sounds good. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the first question is, wh- wh- why did you think they were connected and why did you ask me about, about folk horror? What was it you, mm. you, you thought the answer was going to look like? That's a really good question. I I mean, I my assumption was, and I understand now that the assumption was wrong, that <laughs> folk horror had roots that go back as long as horror. Mm. Writing, stories, that kind of thing. And I suppose it's because... When we think about something like, say, The Wicker Man, which we'll get into in more detail later on, which is a an example of folk horror, it has this, uh, what I would call a timeless quality, or also a quality that's sort of reaching back into a, a previous time. So my assumption is that, you know, stories where a character goes to a village and it's a bit more backward or a bit less advanced than theirs is examples of folk horror. And when you think about Uh, A writer like, say, Arthur Macken, who's writing at the end of the 19th, early 20th century and drawing on folktales as a way of making things scary. I just assumed it went all the way back. Anyway, I was kind of wrong with that assumption. I suppose there there are folk horror elements that go for before that. But what I quickly found or what I worked out is that folk horror is, I guess, an, an invention of the 1970s. Yeah, and and was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and possibly not even recognised as as a genre mm. for some time after that as well. I think it was in actually in the early noughties where the phrase was really used to describe a particular genre. Although I think the phrase had been used previously to that. Mm. One of the directors of the 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 big three original folk horror films, or or the the unholy trilogy, as as they're sometimes referred to. I think I think he used it in an interview um, in the early noughties. It's a bit like you know the old joke about the the marksman who shoots the shoots the barn first and then draws his target afterwards around the around the shots. Yeah, there's a there's a post a, a, a kind of post period grouping of a number of films together into this genre. Yeah, mm. and that's interesting because I, I guess 
you would assume that there was a, a strong commonality between the films as a because of that they were all very similar but actually mm-hmm. there's not really and it, it's it defining the genre i think this is the first thing i said to you is defining the genre is, is pretty hard and lots mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. lots of words have been written about what exactly makes something folk horror or not yeah and that idea of a post fact definition or a post fact grouping i think is really useful for our work here as well because there could be elements of what has now become folk horror that we could find at previous times, such as in the 1920s in Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. It's just that Lovecraft and his, and his you know chums, his Mia, are not nef- necessarily saying, let's write some folk horror, or for this next story, I'm going to go with the the tropes of folk horror. Of course they're not going to, because it's not it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. There's, yeah, no, yeah. there's no thing that they can call it, but that's not to say they're not writing. I want to draw on some of the characteristics and some of the tropes of this genre. So that's super interesting. And I, I hope that as we talk, we can maybe get a bit more of a sense of what those different elements that make up what would now be called folk horror are. And then where that's really interesting for me then is how do we see them in Arkham, if at all? And yeah. are they the kinds, you know, if, if this were to be in feast of hemlock vale what kind of elements might we expect and you know we don't know necessarily that duke will have done the same amount of research of okay here are the things i need to touch to make this sort of accurate folk horror yeah but maybe he has yeah yeah it's his job and 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 you know but judging by some of the influences he's listed he's been really steeped in the the genre really mm. so like mm-hmm. this stuff just passes on by osmosis doesn't it that's how yeah how yeah. similar things emerge at the same time that's why we had three films which did have this kind of common thread folk mm. horror all appearing within what, about five years of each other you've written down some caveats in our notes should we get them out of the way before we go any further yeah i guess there was a few things first of all I don't want to claim to be experts. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've I've done yeah. I've done some research. I've watched some films. I've read some books. Um, I'll uh, when we start talking in a bit more detail, I'll I'll say my main sources. Although I've done some other reading as well. Yeah, but I'm not definitive at all on this. And probably mm. we've got listeners who know know much much more than I do. So be gentle if you're one of those people. But I've got some good sources <laughs> for further reading if if you want to if you want to follow up on it. Mm. And then I also wanted to say, you know, Beast of Hemlock Vale is an Arkham Horror, the card game, the living card game expansion set in the Arkham Files world, mm-hmm. which itself Inspired by. Is, <laughs> is, is part of the kind of the wider writings that the, the Cthulhu mythos that emerged sort of after Lovecraft was done with it. Mm. You know, we had a lot of games which then influenced the board game and then the background was set up for that. And, you know, it, it's it's a licensed product of Fantasy Flight games. It's not literally Lovecraft. It does take a lot of mm. ins- inspiration from his work. But there's there's a number of tone differences there. Yeah, They can't have the protagonists dying because the protagonists need to come back in every mm. new expansion, at least in theory. You know, there's, there's more of an emphasis on pulp action than the more kind of pulp horror or horror. Yeah. yeah. So what what we wanted to do was, was draw a line from Lovecraft to folk horror, but also you've got this diversion. So do you go from Lovecraft to Arkham Files to folk horror? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it has to be a product which appeals to a wide variety of people, right? So yeah. that's always going to change like slightly what the emphasis is. 
it's like um, do you end up drawing a triangle? You've got the line from Lovecraft to Arkham Horror, the card game, and then you've got the line from Lovecraft to folk horror, and then do you add a third line <laughs> that's folk horror to Arkham Horror, the card game? Yeah. Or is it more like a, a recipe? And if you start with the ingredient Lovecraft. To get to Feast of Hemlock Vale, do you have to, at some stage in the cooking process, add folk horror in the way that you wouldn't for other expansions? Yeah. It, yeah it's, it's really curious to me. And I guess the last thing to caveat is that a lot of the founding texts of folk horror, particularly some of the films, they're from a less, you've written less enlightened period, especially when it comes to gender representation, and they fall into the bracket of exploitation films. Yes. So, Yeah. Some of them deal with pretty uncomfortable topics. Some of them depict naked women as a way of titillating the viewer. And it's worth being aware of that. I guess we should at this point call that content warning. I don't think either of us are planning to talk in detail about... When I was, I was yeah. scrolling through Shudder to watch a film yesterday um, in mm. prep for this, and I came across a film which was described as nunsploitation. Nunsploitation, yeah. okay. Yeah. I'll have to go back yeah. to that, I think. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I suppose that we would add that to the kind of content warning that we would normally issue when we're talking about Lovecraft as well. You know, Lovecraft's writing now, 100 years ago, and we know that some of his personal views that come into his writing are views that we entirely disagree with and do not condone. So when we're talking about these kinds of things, again, our feeling is that we don't agree with those things and we're probably looking at the text in terms of its influence on the game rather than in terms of whether or not we agree. Yes. Okay, so what is folk horror? I'm going to... I've done my classic research, the old Wikipedia. I'd be failing my my, uh, university education if this is what I'd done. Shall I share (laughs) this description and then you can spring off from that? Oh, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, so I found this one, this... You know, no prizes for my research. Folk horror is a subgenre of horror film and horror fiction that uses elements of folklore to invoke fear and foreboding. Typical elements include a rural setting, isolation, and themes of superstition, folk religion, paganism, sacrifice, and the dark aspects of nature. Although related to supernatural horror film, folk horror usually focuses on the beliefs and actions of people rather than the supernatural and often deals with naive outsiders coming up against these uh, coming up against these and then it goes on to say the british films blood on satan's claw from 1971 the wicker man from 73 and witchfinder general from 68 are regarded as pioneers of the genre while the 2019 film midsummer sparked renewed interest in folk horror it also adds southeast asian cinema also commonly features folk horror so i would love to maybe explore that down the line but probably it's beyond the purview of this episode so there we go we've got the three films that are considered the pioneers of the genre also references midsummer and if you go to instagram and check out will i games instagram account will i game is an arkham content creator they actually posted a series of different things from duke's mood board series of different pieces of media, which included Wicker Man, included Midsummer, and various other films. I think you've been working through some of them in your research, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen all of the original trilogy, The Unholy Trinity. So I'm sure it's called The Blood on Satan's Claw, not Blood on Satan's Claw. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It And, and it gets it gets changed as well. Some people call it that and some people call it The Blood. I think officially it's The Blood on Satan's Claw. And also, I think there was a renewed interest in folk horror before Midsummer came along, but maybe that's just me. Yeah, 
think like you had the witch that came out before then. Yeah. Anyway, right. So I, I've read the book Folk Horror, Hours Dreadful and Things Strange by Adam Scoville, which is a really good sort of primer on folk horror and his theory on what makes up folk horror. There's some really mm-hmm. good chapters in that. There's one about modern folk horror, which is really good. Mm-hmm. A number of stuff that covers around the genre talks about kind of music and other media that has been been kind of influenced by the folk horror genre. But it's quite a nice paragraph at the end here. If you, it's a, it's a little bit long, but do you mind me reading that out? Please go ahead. Okay. So, what is folk horror? Uh, at the heart of this book has been one direct question: What is folk horror? Far from providing a straightforward answer, I hope I have demonstrated that the genre resists such a direct question. It is not any one thing, but in fact a multitude of creative ideas. It is not just horror media that uses folklore, or emphasis on the inner evil found in people. It is not simply a few British films and television series from the 1970s, and it is not just a presentation of landscapes imbued with a sense of the eerie. It is all of these things and more. Essentially, even more than just being a genre, the term folk horror can be seen as a type of social map that tracks the unconscious ley lines between a huge range of different forms of media in the 20th century and earlier. It is one that connects the past and the present to create a clash of belief systems and people, modernity and enlightenment against superstition and faith, the very violence inherent within us as people. It is evil under the soil, the terror in the backwards of a forgotten lane, the loneliness in a brutalist tower block, and the ghost that haunts stones and patches of dark, lonely water. It is both nostalgic for and questioning of days gone by, romantic in its allure of a more open society's ways, but realistic in its honesty surrounding their ultimate prejudice and violence. It is tales of hours dreadful and things strange, a media that requires a literal walking and traversing to fully understand its inner workings. So, I hope that answers your question. And I mean, the things that jumped out for me there, again, the clash of the modern and the ancient or the modern and the traditional, the clash as well of like um, the idea of beliefs and actions of people. So it not just being, ooh, there's a terrifying monster in the woods, but it being, ah, okay, in this village, people believe there's a terrifying monster in the woods. And what happens when we bring an outsider in who doesn't hold that belief? And how does that belief influence the actions of those people who have it and how does it influence the actions of the people who don't have that belief how what do they trample on or how do they cause offense or whatever else it is because they don't buy into those beliefs yeah yeah it's super what that quotation also provides is like a really lovely way in for feast of hemlock vale mm-hmm. and that idea of it's not saying it's such a specific genre. It's sort of saying it's not really a genre at all. It's saying it's a, a way of engaging with all of these different questions and all of these different things that you can do in lots of different ways. We've yeah. seen even from the art for Feast of Hemlock Vale, people sort of dancing around a maypole and wearing masks. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea of kind of a, a folk tradition or, or, yeah, exactly kind of village life. And straight away raises questions then of superstition, folk religion, paganism, all of those things. Isn't the island even called... I'm going to look up the name of the island. In go Feast on. of Hanlock Vale? Mm. Yeah, go on. Is you, it called, like, can... August or Sum- Harvest or Summer something? Isle. <laughs> yeah. Summer Isle. <laughs> yeah, Harvest <laughs> Island, yeah. It's called Hemlock Isle. <laughs> oh, oh, well. I mean, that's an ominous name, name in itself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one thing I thought was was interesting is that we, we've there's a 
popular conception. So, so I'll start. I think what the the quote from Adams Adams Scoville's book does is it is it indicates that it's very hard to give a, a strict definition of of folk horror, unlike mm-hmm. it might be with some other horror genres. Like mm-hmm. a zombie film, it's quite easy to point to the presence of zombies and say it's a zombie film, or yeah. ghosts, or other supernatural um, entities, or you know, teenagers mm. being killed one after another by a masked stranger. Yeah. You know, a slasher fake slasher. Yeah. There's there's other there's hallmarks in quite a lot of horror genres that really like mark it out as part of a part of a genre. I think what's interesting about folk horror is that there was a a rush of it early on, and then scattered examples. Mm. He had this mm-hmm. short period of time where there was quite a lot, and then yeah. there was a revival in the past sort of twenty years. Where we've had a load more films like it, mm. but in a totally different political, social, economic uh, context. Yeah, that is curious. That's super curious. Yeah, what's yeah. going on? <laughs> the, the... Well, I, th- I mean, I think, and I think, interestingly, you can look at those three films: Blood on Satan's Claw and The Wicker Man, especially. And come away with quite different kind of political messages. I don't think there's a mm. uniting political outlook across folk horror films. Witchfinder General is almost a straightforward revenge flick, but there's there's kind of comments on uh, authority in those films. But Blood on Satan's mm. Claw, mm-hmm. you've got very much an opposition of you know the free spirited youth who are having sex rights, and then on the other hand, The Wicker Man, where you've got a you know the landed gentry exploiting mm-hmm. <laughs> with with mm-hmm. the locals for the most profit to get the the, the best produce or or, mm-hmm. or the, the mm-hmm. you know get them working on the land. Anyway, what I was going to say, <laughs> this is popular conception of what folk horror is, and it's a lot of the elements you mentioned. It's essentially the front cover of the Feast of Hemlock Vale box. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. locals with masks doing a weird ritual, dancing around a maypole. But if, if you look back at those source films, Blood on Saints Claw, Command, which find general, that kind of vibe isn't really present across all three of them. And in fact, even the supernatural is not present in all of them. There's mm-hmm. this idea that you might be scared of things that are in the forest or in the woods. And actually only one of those three films has any supernatural element at all. Uh, Wicker Man and Wicker Man and Witchfinder General are entirely mundane. The threat yeah. comes from people in positions of, of authority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. And, and it, it sort of makes this, there was a phrase I, I heard when I was doing some other research, which is like, it's like trying to box up mist. <laughs> you know, you can yeah. sort of, or, or well, that definition of pornography, you know, I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. So I think on the one hand, there is like this vibe-based image of folk horror, which is, you know, the maypole. Yeah. On the other hand, when you go back to the roots, it is kind of vibe based. <laughs> There's quite yeah. a broad set of vibes. There are certain themes that come through, like the the rural settings or characters from a from a modern setting have or or a, a an urban setting have gone mm-hmm. to a rural setting. That's quite common. Or there's some sort of uh, horror embedded in the land of the area you're in. I think the use of the landscape is very, very common in folklore, especially British folklore films. The other thing I should have mm. added at the beginning is that we're both British and our knowledge yes. of, of culture and landscape is largely based around Britain. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, I think the vibes-based thing 
is part of what leads to folk horror being such a broad genre, if it is even a genre. It's, I think, actually comparable to, say, when you're talking about Lovecraft and cosmic horror, mm-hmm. a Lovecraft story might begin with, I I don't want to tell you this story, I've, I hate the memory, you know, it makes me shudder even to think of it now, oh, by the way, I'm in a sanatorium or I'm in hospital. But you wouldn't necessarily say that cosmic horror requires the character, the protagonist, to have been driven insane by it. But that's become a hallmark of it and a way that Lovecraft presented his stories to get the the, the details he wants. That there's a moment where the human psyche shatters in the face of what he's, he's handling. <laughs> anyway, I, I wanted to jump off actually on something else you said there about the idea of the films being in some sense mundane. Mm. That there isn't a supernatural element. And I was thinking about that in terms of Feast of Hemlock Vale, where one of the commonly accepted positions around Arkham is that when you're playing an Arkham story, there will be something supernatural at the end. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, have we ever come across an Arkham story where it turns out that it was just the janitor in a mask? No. You know, well, I think, it, I think the, the, the only thing I can think is sometimes you get expansions which focus on the gangs in Arkham, right? Yes. So you've got yeah. the gangsters all fighting against each other. But I, is there any ever a supernatural element to those? Is there like a, a Shoggoth is a mafia boss that's coordinating things from behind the scenes <laughs> or something? That would be amazing. Or, well, normally there's one gang that has some sort of access to magic. Right. It's There's like one gang is getting stronger because they've got Tommy guns and the other gang has allied itself with a cult or got the access to magic or something like that. And even you think about our one kind of most gang mob related scenario the house always wins that specifically has a story beat within it where you then shuffle in the conglomeration of spheres and madness breaks loose so even what could be supposedly a non-supernatural scenario has a supernatural element in arkham yeah anyway i guess what that leads to is if in Feast of Hemlock Vale, if it's going to turn out that whoever's, I don't know, the mayor of the island or the alderman or whoever has a position of authority, if they are actually going to turn out to also be a cult leader, what we know going into Feast of Hemlock Vale that you might not know in a folk horror setting is that there is something supernatural. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they can, I, mean, I don't know if it's possible, but I wonder if they can play on that. What if some of the things we fight in the woods at night are not supernatural. We might think they are because it's dark, but what if they're actually just, you know, a bear in the woods? And I, yeah, I, I don't know if it's possible to do in Arkham because, you you know, you draw a ghoul minion, you know you're dealing with the supernatural. Yeah. You can't you can't sort of fake it. So, yeah, I'm really intrigued about that. It Maybe, maybe Arkham loses something that folk horror has, which is it can pit differing beliefs but it doesn't say which is true or not. What yeah. matters is that in Wicker Man, the, the village believe that they need to sacrifice someone. Yes, yes. Uh, they have sort of toyed with the idea of an unreliable narrator. So Carcosa, you had all the way through, it was unsure mm. whether the supernatural creatures you were seeing were real or not. Mm. Or it was just mm. images you've conjured within your own head. Yeah. But I think that's interesting, and it... it I think in you're absolutely spot on. It, we could be in a situation where some or all of the villagers that we encounter in in on Hemlock 
Is it Hemlock Vale the island or Hemlock is the island? It's called Hemlock Isle. Hemlock, Hemlock Isle. Isle. Whether yeah. any of the locals that we, we meet on Hemlock Isle know there's anything supernatural going on behind the scenes or do they just think they're doing having a nice harvest festival Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think one of the things that would be interesting to do is just think a bit about the context of folk horror in yeah in the 70s the late 60s and Mm. the early 70s because that might let us draw a parallel to when lovecraft was drawing stories or, or maybe highlight some differences and i think the i listened to a really good radio show which i think you listened to as well Called I did, yeah. Black Aquarius. Great suggestion, by the way, and I recommend to all of our listeners. It's on BBC Sounds. It's just a one-off, uh, fifty minutes long. It was great. Yeah, it was really good, and, and it, they talked a lot about both. It was really focused on seventies occultism and mm. the revival of such tied to the the counterculture. I yeah. think it's some at one point someone says there's like this pendulum swinging between you know lots of science and the rejection of science. And it mm. was on a, on a swing away from science towards there are things that we don't understand. Mm. And when mm. I'm saying that, that does sound very Lovecraftian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, the idea of the, the cults were very, like, seductive, I think. Mm. It was all very sexy. There was a lot of talk of... I don't know, it, it's a bit like that. You can imagine, you know, whatever the... the socially conservative newspaper of the day would be like mm. pearl clutching about about how terrible these books were and all the depictions of sex and things like that and you know sort of mm. responding well don't threaten me with a good time yeah and and the appeal of them then as well if you're in a position where you're sick of stage traditionalism you're sick of being told how to behave the idea that you might go along to something that has a reputation of being seductive sexy countercultural even if it's not actually that countercultural is really it's really fascinating like um so, so one of the people who's interviewed is robert irwin who i know a, a tiny bit because he used to write for the magazine i used to work for mm-hmm. and he went to a black mass oh yeah and i'm pretty sure it's him who says this he's very not dismissive but he's very um clear-eyed about the experience like the point is that you need a virgin celebrant or something like that as part of it and he's like pretty sure she wasn't a virgin (laughs) you know he says something like that so there's this idea that you're buying into the this urbane cult that has a virgin and various people who oversee it and all of these other things and then you actually get involved in it and it's people having a nice time in one way or another with ritual and and how real or not it is. I've sometimes thought about that as well with Alistair Crowley. You know, Alistair Crowley had this following as this amazing magician, but it seems like he also was just very charismatic. Yeah. And people people liked him because there was always a hint of excitement and glamour around him. I mean, I could be getting that wrong and he could have also done human sacrifices that I don't know about. But that's certainly <laughs> the you get people who write about Crowley as though he's this amazing person, but I don't know how much he was actually uh, magical or not. And then there was all these pulp stories by the guy Dennis Wheatley as well. Mm. Uh, Devil Rides Out, I think, was one of the first ones. And he's he's got a, a, a pulp action hero who tackles cults and things. It's It's very... I think it was an inspiration for James Bond. I think they said that. Yeah. And you've got a, a very, like... I don't know, like a mythos developed, which sort of 
doesn't quite exist in reality, but then exists in people's heads of what reality is like, of, mm. of cults in English manners and rites being conducted by people wearing purple robes, um, drinking mm-hmm. goblets of wine. That's also where you then where it feeds into exploitation films is that idea of people in purple robes and women with their breasts the on off. Show. Yeah, yeah, and it ties into then another thing that's going on in the seventies with the fact that there's um, certain parts of censorship are being removed in British cinema, so you get this opportunity to do this, which leads into a, you know, like you can see how the cult it ticks the bo- box for being mysterious or otherworldly. It ticks the box for being attractive being seductive and then it also ticks the sex box yeah so they kind of all of the things fit together it's like how can we get a setting where there can be a woman who's topless and there's also sort of some glamour and there's also danger ah a cult yeah but i think what's interesting is you look at the beliefs as they're they're shown and they're not Mm. they're not genuine they're not they're probably not genuine reflections. Like you said about the Black Mass, mm. that is a spectacle conjured up by contemporary people in order to give the impression of an old right. I would be almost sure that that's the case. Yeah, and and even to play off their own understandings of a Catholic Mass mm-hmm. and maybe the, the traditionalism or the boringness, that's not my judgment, just what what people might have felt around mass. And yeah. it's this idea of like, well, how can we sex it up? Well, we spice it up a bit. <laughs> yeah. How can we do something that is both traditional, but also shows that we're countercultural? Yeah. And also shows that we don't care about this thing as much. So yeah, tie, I guess it ties into, ties into punk as well, right? Yeah. This idea of ta- tearing down the established order and saying we don't believe in it anymore. But if we can just just riff on this for a bit, because I think this gets to the root mm. of why I like the genre and also why I like horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm something I like about well constructed horror. You've got these these beliefs which are meant to portray kind of old rights. I mean, if 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 we look at and I'll I'll spoil the the Wicker Man here. So if you haven't watched it, plug your ears for a minute. Mm. The 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 kind of twist in the Wicker Man. There's a couple of twists, sort of, but there's the, the the supposed ancient pagan activities that they're doing on the island. It's it's kind of a fiction constructed by Lord Summerisle, isn't it? Mm, mm-hmm. He's he's manipulating the beliefs of the islanders for his own ends, and he's mm. created based on a book which I think is Victorian. I, I can't quite remember. It's been a little while since I watched it. He's created this this like fictional setting this his own mythos <laughs> yeah in order to to well for his own ends right and i think that gets to the root of you look at some of the more modern horrors and they're able to tell contemporary stories using old beliefs even if those beliefs are fictionalized like the, the actual beliefs themselves aren't the point of the story it's what they tell mm-hmm. us about the world today like you look at something like the witch and mm-hmm. that is a story about authority and misogyny and things like that using these ancient beliefs about uh, witches. So that, the, yeah. yeah, you know, Eggers does like to be historically accurate, but in a way he didn't need to be. Mm-hmm. I think one of the genius things he does is he, he manages to, to, to tell two stories at once, a, a contemporary horror story and a story which, which would have worked as a kind of real historical piece. 
But it's really interesting seeing those, the interpretation of those past periods in time in a modern lens and telling us things which uh, about the time that the the film or the book or whatever it is was made. Mm-hmm. So that the you know, yeah. Blood on Satan's Claw. I think is a great example. It's about it's, it's almost a commentary on free love, where you see all these people like partying, but they accidentally well they don't accidentally they they, they they're doing it to summon a demon. Yeah, you know, in the context of the seventies, it's very easy to see like a political spin on that, isn't it? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I I guess this actually weirdly ties all the way back to what I thought folk horror was, mm-hmm. and it's almost like I I suppose I thought it had this roots of these older beliefs that were accurate. Mm-hmm. And yet what we've actually discovered in the 70s is they're almost transplanted on to tell a story that makes a commentary on that time and it draws on the past. So you've put a note here about sentimental pastoralism, and which again comes from Black Aquarius, and this idea that you, you, you want to create a setting where you can juxtapose modernity and an urban setting with a rural setting, with sentimentalism with this idea of like a pre-industrial society so you need someone coming basically from the urban into the rural so that you can make those things clash yeah and this idea that actually say village life in the victorian period people had pagan beliefs may or may not actually be that accurate but for the purposes of folk horror you can set those beliefs up against each other so you can create that and what i actually think where i think wicker man is genius is that it's actually quite explicit. There's like an extra layer there. It's not just the filmmaker has created the fact that the people on this island will have the belief. It's that they show you that Lord Summerisle has deliberately created those beliefs for their own ends. Yeah, and yeah. I think yeah, I think that's one of the parts that's really smart about it. Yeah, it's basically explicitly false. Yeah, and so then when those beliefs start to inspire actions that are causing harm. It's like, oh, what's going on here? That these beliefs are not true and yet are inspiring true action. I've not seen Midsummer, but I did a bit of reading about what happens in Midsummer, And it sounds like there's a similar thing going on around do you poo-poo what people are doing or think it's sort of quaint? And then you find that it actually ends up with people who buy into it explicitly and it leads to violence. Yeah, Mid- yeah. I, I mean, I could talk I'll talk for a while on Midsummer, but I won't. Midsummer's <laughs> interesting because it, it's very easy to watch the film the first time. It's about a, a woman who is grieving, who has a partner who's is awful. <laughs> mm. <laughs> there's there's an there's an a reading at the end, which is a kind of a you go girl reading, mm. which says she gets rid of her awful boyfriend and she's in a better place. Mm-hmm. But when you look a bit deeper. It's actually about the seduction of the cult for people who are in vulnerable situations like she is. Yeah. The cult offers her a way out of a terrible situation by kind of offering her all the answers. But mm. the cult are really bad people. And there's there's hints dropped through the film that they are like a kind of eth- a, a, a cipher for ethno nationalists. Wow. Yeah. And when you watch the film again with that in mind, you're like, oh God, how did I miss all these? Warning signs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's exactly mm-hmm. the point with cults is that they're able to recruit people who are in vulnerable situations by, by kind of blinding them to the warning signs. And once you're in, it's too late. You're in. Yeah, yeah. And that's so different from the sort of seventies seductive cults. Yes. Yeah. That doesn't 
seem to to have the same impression of threat. And then it's more about join this cool club where you get drunk and you have sex. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. much less you're buying into a system of beliefs that is threatening or violent and so on and so forth. And then and then you look at something like Kill List, which is a horrific film, uh, but but in, an, an incredible watch. Mm-hmm. That ends up with a message about how the, the cult is, or, or people in positions of power who have various unsavory kind of side activities, but are able to get away with, and, and it's, it's, it's nightmarish because someone is drawn into a situation from which there's no escape. All the people mm-hmm. involved in the cult are, are people in positions of power. So it's, it's like a commentary on class in, in the UK. That class mm-hmm. comes in a lot in the more modern, um, especially for, for UK films. If you look at Ben Whitley films, class is really, really often explored. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. often talk about Eden Lake as a as a modern uh, folk horror film, and that that really like leans into the demonization of the working class. Yeah, you might see in what's Owen Jones' book called Chavs, I think, the demonization yeah. of the working class. And that's like a, a gang of feral youths on bikes with knives and hoodies, uh, yeah. t- tormenting a couple who are lost in the woods. There's mm-hmm. lots of mm-hmm. you know, it's outsiders coming to an area they don't understand. There's, they're trapped there. You know, there's lots of hallmarks and there's all these activities that the teenagers do which are kind of ritualistic. Yeah, yeah. And the outs- yeah, the outsiders not understanding, like clearly being marked out as an outsiders and yeah. not being able to either have the social capital or the, the kind of social passport that allows them to be okay within these different groups. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, really interesting. So we- we've talked about folk horror, we've danced around it a little bit. I hope we've we've given the impression that there's it's a, it's a amorphous subject or amorphous mm-hmm. genre certainly. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of sum up what I want to say before we moved on to talk a bit more about Lovecraft, mm. I think that idea of it being tied to the seventies countercultural movement initially is a really good mm-hmm. one because there's a lot of. I mean, I, I, we haven't got time to talk about what what caused that to happen, but this slight rejection on moving beyond scientific beliefs I think is going to be Mm. relevant Mm. and the idea of sexual repression or sexual freedom I think that's probably also going to be relevant to looking at the background to to Lovecraft stories Mm -hmm. yeah so well and actually you said science as well I'm thinking of um Kate Kate Winthrop exactly the scientist in Feast of Emerald Whale amazing well, but but this is interesting, and this leads us nicely on to Lovecraft because there's an idea that science allowed us to take a peek into the unknown, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the the kind of occultist belief is that there's more that there's more to the world than science can tell you. Lovecraft yeah. is almost flipping that on its head because he he was coming off a period of, I guess, scientific discovery in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, mm-hmm. and. His view is very much like, what did I say? How did I phrase it for the for the seventies? For the There's more to the world than science can tell you. Yeah, he was mm, almost like yeah. you can t- you can use science to pick into the unknown, to pick into mm. the horrific, or or rather, you're picking into the unknown, and what what you might see is horrific, is is a is an idea of your own insignificance. Yeah, we spoke to Duke very briefly, and he recommended three Lovecraft stories in particular: mm-hmm. the Color Out of Space, the Festival, and the bog moon the moon bog the moon bog the moon bog <laughs> i think i've done that every time i've said the name yeah the bog moon 
the Moonbog. So, so what what are these stories about, Frank? Yeah, and can we find any folk horror tropes or or details in them? So yeah, I've I haven't actually reread Color Out of Space, but I know it pretty well. So in that that comes out in September 1927. That's the latest of the stories that we're looking at, mm-hmm. and this is this idea of where well, it's a meteor that's hit the ground, hasn't it, and is kind of corrupting plant life and and life around it and it has a narrator go to visit this place and find out what's what's happened there so we have the idea of he's a surveyor from boston Mm -hmm. so we have the urban modern character coming to a rural setting to find out more uh, which i guess ties in i think the festival is more fitting though so the festival comes out in january 1925 in weird tales it absolutely fits the Lovecraft mould of starting with a narrator saying, I don't want to recall these events, but I should. <laughs> and and ends with them in St. Mary's Hospital of course. in Arkham. Yeah, classic. So like really love that as a framing device. But uh, essentially what happens is the protagonist is going to Kingsport on the coast to carry out a festival which occurs once a century and has been established by his ancestors. It's also Christmas time, and I know that people have tried to make a... I think there is a festival fan-made scenario for Christmas. Oh, nice. Um, I think the locations are in the shape of a Christmas tree. Oh, which is beautiful. <laughs> kind of cool. Anyway, he arrives in Kingsport at night. It's silent. It's bleak. It, there's a lot of gambrel roofs. There's a lot of houses leaning towards each other. He finds the house of his ancestors, and he's greeted by a dumb man. And he sits in this living room for a while with a woman spinning who doesn't speak. And there's a pile of, of mouldy old tomes on the, on the table, including the Necronomicon, which he sits and reads for a bit. And then he joins this old man and old woman and they go out into a procession through the village in the middle of the night to a church. This bit I found really lovely and creepy. They go into the church and the crypt is open. So they go down, everyone processes down into the crypt. And then in the crypt, there's a sort of hole in the ground. And they go into that and there are tunnels in the ground. And they go deeper and deeper into the earth. Mm-hmm. And in the depths of the earth, they're performing foul rites. And there's a there's a river as well underground. Basically, these terrifying creatures arrive. And all of the people in the procession, each one by one, get on the backs of these creatures and ride off, like fly off into the, sc- into the sunset, well, it's into the middle of the night. Yeah. The protagonist refuses, throws himself into the river to get away mm-hmm. and wakes up in hospital. Of course. Right. Okay. Uh, well, he wakes up in a local hospital, goes to see Kingsport and finds out it's not decrepit, it's fine. And that drives him insane. Right, okay. Yeah, so that's the kind of sting in the tail that everything he saw that night has been disproved by his sort of visit in daytime. Interesting. C- can I can I draw out a couple of things mm. that have struck me straight away from the, from the first two? Yeah, go ahead, yeah. They both involve the land itself, or something poisonous within the land, right? That in mm. the in the festival mm-hmm. they go deep underground, and yes. yeah. in the color out of space, it's while it's something alien that has come to earth. Mm. There's this idea that something has poisoned the land. I think that story ends with the, all the color drained out of a huge area. It's the blasted heath, yeah. right? Is that yeah, blasted heath exactly? And that that's a really like if you've seen. Uh, the Borderlands, which is a found footage film, that ends mm. with the the protagonist kind of descending into the earth and finding something horrific mm. lying at the root mm. of the problems. 
And even the blood and Satan's claw that begins with someone unearthing a this furry skull, right? Yeah, that's right, a demon's skull, mm. and that's that's what sets in the kind of corruption amongst the youth. Something yeah. within the yeah. land is poisonous. I, you could even tie that to the Wicker Man and the idea that these pagan rites prompt Pur- fertility of crops. Earth, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else that jumps out to you from these first two? That's it for the moment. Yeah, there's this lovely detail, actually, when he gets into the house with the old man. He beckoned me into a low, candlelit room with massive exposed rafters and dark, stiff, sparse furniture of the 17th century. The past was vivid there, for not an attribute was missing. There was a cavernous fireplace and a spinning wheel at which a bent old woman in loose wrapper and deep poke bonnet sat back toward me, silently spinning despite the festive season. If this was a film, you'd be like, establishing shot... This place is ancient. Yeah. And again, this links back, I think, to that that idea that we then see later on of sentimental pastoralism, but specifically just like sentimental something from the past. Yeah. This, you know, Lovecraft saying this place looks old. It looks different. It's not modern. You know, anything could happen here. I, I love you, that you've, you've, yeah, you've done read... the, the next paragraph is the classic Lovecraft Here's a load of spooky books. <laughs> yeah, do you want to read this one out? Just cause I oh put it in just because. Yeah, okay, right. When I sat down to read, I saw the books were hoary and mouldy, and they were, and that they included old Morister's wild marvels of science, the terrible Sadducismus, Sadducumus, <laughs> yeah, Triumphatus of Joseph Glanville, published in in sixteen eighty one, the shocking Demonolatria of Regimis. Remigius, <laughs> yeah. printed at fifteen, uh, printed in fifteen ninety five at Lyon, and worst of all, worst of all, the unmentionable. Oh well, we can't mention it. The unmentionable Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Al Hazred, in Olaus Wormius's forbidden Latin translation, a book which I had never seen, but of which I had heard monstrous things whispered. Imagine going to stay with two two old women and they've yeah. just got the Necronomicon sitting on their bookshelf. Yeah, <laughs> And imagine then you looking at all of these grim books and the book he chooses to sit and flick through is the Necronomicon. <laughs> oh, can I have a look at this? <laughs> Which I suppose is, is a kind of classic horror trope, isn't it? That you, you're like, oh, that's actually drawn my eye. And maybe I will dive into that. I guess there's also the idea of the forbidden being alluring. Yeah. Which... Yeah. One thing Lovecraft rarely does in his stories is explain why his protagonist might be into it. Yeah. You know, in in a maybe a modern telling or in the hands of a different writer, there would be some establishing details that would explain to us why this character in particular might open a book that otherwise you wouldn't open. You'd look at and go, oh, no, no, thank you, not for me. Yeah. But yeah. there's a kind of assumption in most Lovecraft protagonists that their curiosity will get the better of them and that they will look at the things they shouldn't look at. And I think when it links back to what you were pointing out about Midsummer, and is it making a point about vulnerability and the kind of people that are vulnerable to alternative belief systems or, or violent belief systems mm. and yeah, Lovecraft doesn't really ever explain why someone... It, it's like a given that if you see the Necronomicon, you'd open it. Which, yeah. You know. well, but it's interesting, if if you watch the Evil Dead series, mm, mm. they almost all... The, the All of them have in common is the triggering event is, is either just the opening or the reading of part of the Necronomicon. Yeah. 
just they find some tapes in Latin at the. I was going to say, isn't there one the part where it's not even reading it; it's just hearing it on tape? Yeah, like that. Th- that that's the first one. A, a guy has brought the Necronomicon to like a a remote house in the forest or cabin in the woods in mm. order to to read it in safety. And that's a common thread that runs through those films, aside from mm. um, Army of Darkness. In, in the most recent one, they find it in a, in a vault, and there's all these records of people reading bits of it out. And the kid's a DJ and, and tries to use it. And then he tries to open the book and cuts his finger on all the teeth around the side of the book and spills blood on it. But But the trope is such that when you see a spooky book... You're like, don't read it, don't open it, don't even open it, don't look at it, because bad mm. things will happen. And there's a, there's a scene in Cabin in the Woods, a great horror pastiche film, mm. where they they go down to the basement in the cabin they're in, and the idea is there's all these tropes from different types of horror film, and whatever they've picked, that's the kind of evil they're going to summon. And it's mm. packed with references to, to horror genres and, and specific horror films. And at one point, there's a there's a tape in Latin, I think, and one of the characters. Oh no, no, it's written in Latin. That's it. It's a diary with a section written in Latin. Mm-hmm. And he says, "I'm drawing a line under reading the Latin. Don't read the Latin." <laughs> <laughs> Spot on. Like it's straight out of Lovecraft, right? Yeah. It even actually ends the festival. Pretty sure the festival ends. Yeah, that he gets a copy of the Necronomicon brought to him at St Mary's Hospital. Hmm. They lent me their the doctors lent me their influence in obtaining the carefully sheltered copy of Alhab's Hazard's objectionable Necronomicon from the library at Miskatonic University. <laughs> yeah, they said something about a psychosis and agreed I'd better get any harassing ob- obsessions off my mind. And so it ends with him reading the Necronomicon again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he ain't it's learned. Re- it went basically. so well the first time. <laughs> yeah. Another bit I want to share from the festival, because I just thought it was wonderful, is the summoned creatures that turn up in this underground vault. Yeah. Out of the imaginable blackness beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled uncanny, unheard and unsuspected, there flopped rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid-winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp or sound brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats, nor decomposed human beings, but something I cannot and must not recall. Wow. Just I'm, I'm imagining him with a, with a bag full of animal names. And just yeah. being like, okay, what are they not? Ah, buzzards. I feel like House Lovecraft has also maybe actually got a sense of what they are. Hmm. And is then... He's sort of saying, well, they've got a beak like a crow, <laughs> furry body like a mole, I don't know, talons like a buzzard, I don't know what part of ant is or vampire bat, Six but yeah, leathery wings. wings like a, yeah. And of course, if you'd said, if, if you said it in that way, it's really not that scary. You're just describing this chimera that looks a certain way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. No, anyway, it made me laugh. So yeah, that's the festival. If we go back to some of the themes of folk horror, I've touched on it already, the idea of the protagonist coming from an urban location. Yes, a genealogist. They're almost always a genealogist, aren't they? Yeah. What, what, yeah. what did you say this guy was doing? Did he say? He's doing it to just... No, it doesn't say. He's just going to fulfil the ritual that his ancestors did. Ah, okay, right. 
Yeah, I'd come at last to the ancient sea town where my people had dwelt and kept festival in the elder time when festival was forbidden, where also they'd commanded their sons to keep festival once every century. Right. So while it's not like a... He's not a genealogist, he is revisiting a place from his past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I'll take that as a win. And I guess he's encountering older or pre-Christian beliefs, which is another folk horror thing. Mm-hmm. And you've put whether genuinely pagan or not. I mean, there's a there's a hint in the festival that they are these sort of, I guess, terrifying beliefs. I'll find the park because it was really fascinating. Mine were an old people and were old even when this land was settled 300 years before. And they were strange because they'd come as dark, furtive folk from opiate southern gardens of orchids and spoken another tongue before they learnt the tongue of the blue-eyed fishers. Uh, it, we're straying into Lovecraft racism territory there. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also hinting at this idea that the people of Kingsport are not um, European settlers, but are actually a different people who've come from a different place, an ancient people with ancient beliefs, and that festival is this non-Christian, pre-Christian thing that you need to do. Yeah. So yeah. So there is a festival here. It's not a maypole or a harvest festival, but it is a festival. You've also put locals performing multiple roles. The mayor is the cult leader. Never trust the post worker. Yes. Now the dumb, <laughs> the dumb man that he, this dumb old man that he meets at their family home, who seems to just be his chaperone, turns out to be leading some of the rites in right. the crypt. So who he thought was this, I suppose, just. Um, yeah, chaperone, accompanying person, actually turns out to have a significant role within what's being done, which yeah. is which is pretty fascinating. I, and I suppose then there's you've also put people being summoned with false pretenses, often by someone claiming to be in trouble. That, I would say, doesn't really feature in the festival. The expectation is that the character will join in the rites because they believe in it and not yeah. that they'll be terrified. But, but I, I think one of the interesting things is that there's a, a fixing of the character's fate as soon as they arrive. Their, their, their doom is sealed as soon as they arrive. Like, Howie, mm. as soon as Howie gets to the island, nothing he can do can escape from it. And this yeah. lends part of the nightmarish feel of some of these folk horror stories where mm. you mm. simply cannot escape from the situation you're in. And even as your fate becomes inevitable and obvious, there's no way to get out of it. And that... that feeling of an, an inevitable death kind of clawing its way towards you is I don't know I just find that really nightmarish I that's something I love about TCU that there's an inevitability to TCU yeah and it's it, your fate is written and you're just you're trapped in the cycle of it I think maybe Feast of Hemlock Vale can lean into that really well because we're trapped on an island yeah and yeah. maybe there won't be options to resign and we know already from the introductory preview article that there's going to be an intro scenario and then a day and night three times. So day one, day two, day three, which will be six scenarios and then a conclusion. Yeah. So you're very much on these tracks of this is what we're going to face. We're on track to to uh, basically once the events of Hemlock Vale begin, you're, you're in, you're locked in. Yeah, that, it's, it's difficult though because a, a game needs to have a almost a possibility of you impacting the outcome. Mm-hmm. Especially, mm-hmm. there was some hint that this might, the structure of Hemlock Vale might be more replayable mm. if you can you can sequence your the, the 
the scenarios change depending on, on what point and whether it's day or night when you play them. So yeah. which day you play them yeah. and whether it's day or night. Yeah, if you think of a variety of locations across the island yeah, and you're choosing, are we visiting morning two? Are we going to the observatory or are we going to the barn? You know, and that might change. But 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 all I was going to say was the idea that your struggles are meaningless and your fate is sealed might not work as well in the game as it does. Yeah, <laughs> especially yeah. a game you want to play play several times mm. might not work mm-hmm. as well as it does in a film. Mm. This ties into what you said about the sort of Arkham Files pulpiness. Yeah, and one feature of folk horror, as you say, is that your doom might be sealed, and that runs counter to this idea of having a degree of agency in Arkham Files that you could that, that might need to be subverted if yeah. you're gonna end with all the characters being sacrificed every time you play, maybe Feast of Hemlock Girl will be will that's <laughs> too much of a bucking of the trend of how Arkham Files works for it to be acceptable. Be nice if there's an actual threat that that might happen though. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine the outrage if halfway through all of your characters get um burnt in the wicker man or something like that <laughs> and you have to create new characters yeah right should we talk about the moon bog as well yes um this is the one i kind of knew least about you were a bit like you didn't seem as excited by this one i read the festival first and really enjoyed it it's got so many classic elements of lovecraft that i was like oh okay this was this was fun and then i read the moon bog and it felt very the same as the festival so maybe that spoiled it for me maybe if i'd read the moon bog first Sometimes I feel like Lovecraft cuts corners and mm. doesn't really bother to establish things very well because he's going for a payoff final moment or whatever it is. Yeah. And it, it felt like that as well. Anyway, I mean, they're both really short. So for the listener, if you want to read a couple of Lovecraft stories that might get you in a, a Feast of Hemlock Vale vibe, why not check these ones out? So Moonbog is published in June 1926. So that is the year... After, After festival, festival and the year before Colour Out of Space, it's the middle one. Again, it's in Wheel Tales. The synopsis I've written here is that there's this character, Dennis Barry, who's an Irishman. He's grown rich in America and then purchased an old castle back in Ireland in Kilderry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You're loving this already. Yeah, it's this, the this castle is rats, of his ancestors. Walls, isn't it? Yeah. This is Exum Priory. Yeah. So men of his blood had once ruled there, <laughs> men of his blood being a quote, and he wants to return. He's doing well in the area but then basically says that the local bog has caused problems. Oh, and the no. problems it's caused is that he wants to drain the bog. And once he set out on a path of draining it so he can develop the land, all of the local peasants working for him are outraged and basically stopped working for him. He's then brought in workers from out of town to do this work. Mm-hmm. And that's the point at which we get to the story. The story is not narrated by Dennis Barry. We have a character who's the narrator who's from America and has been invited over by Dennis to come and visit he stays in this old castle in Kilderry. He wakens in the night to see all of the uh, non-local workers, all of the workers from out of town, basically involved in this moonlit revel across the bog. And there are various what seem like ghostly spirits dancing with them, which really freaks him out. There are various stories about the fact that under the bog is an ancient city and that draining the bog will release what's under there. And on the following night, the night before work to drain the bog begins, our narrator hears mad piping and (laughs) all of the labourers go out and do the procession again. And this time they all die. Right. Pied Piper style. Pied Piper style. Yeah. 
it features a really nice opening line. Somewhere to what remote and fearsome region I know not, Dennis Barry has gone. I was with him the last night he lived among men, and heard his screams when the thing came to him. But all the peasants and police in County Meath could never find him, or the others, though they searched long and far. And now I shudder when I hear the frogs piping in swamps, or see the moon in lonely places. The frogs piping in swamps? Yeah, I guess ribbiting. Yeah, it's not really pipe. Yeah. I mean, unless you're... You've gone full frog chorus. Yeah, this. I mean, very. This like feels very Lovecraft, like more Lovecraft mm-hmm. than the festival. Mm. You've got mm-hmm. this old castle, an, an old castle, an old ancestral home. I think is is classic. I mean, at least in this case, it wasn't a curse tied to the bloodline of the person who inherited it. No, not that I noticed. Yeah, I don't think so. No. I think what interesting, and, and I, me- I mentioned this to you the other day. One of the the <laughs> the cults in the kind of folk horror films, and also in that that occultism revival, they tend to be quite fun and sexy, even if they are satanists or whatever, or even if they're they're. I mean, maybe not fun. There's often used as the kind of it, the exploitation element of it as well. Mm. Certainly, the people involved were urbane and seeming to have a good time as part of the participation in the events. Mm. Whereas the the depiction of cults in Lovecraft are much more it's much more base. It's horrible, mm. ugly mm-hmm. people doing horrible things in the shadows. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the common people, right? In this one, it's I think I guess the implication if I've understood what you said right is that the the locals have carried out this ritual or have done something such that the outsiders are consumed by the bog i'll read a little bit then there were tales of dancing light in the dark of the moon and of chill winds when the night was warm of wraiths in white hovering over the waters and of an imagined city of stone deep below the swampy surface but foremost among the weird fancies and alone in its absolute unanimity was that of the curse awaiting him who should dare to touch or drain the vast reddish morass. There were secrets, said the peasants, which must not be uncovered, secrets which had lain hidden since the plague came to the children of Partholan <laughs> in the fabulous years beyond history. I mean, this part touches on this idea of pagan beliefs that we've talked about in folk horror, this beliefs mm. of the locals. I guess it also touches on that idea of the urbane, educated person essentially not believing it and just steaming on regardless and what happens when you have non-belief and belief collide. My sense from reading the story, I I think I've got this right, is that it's literally supernatural as well that these these wraiths come out. It's not just the local um, villagers doing that. The local villagers know that they'll meet their doom if they do anything to the bog, so they don't. But yeah, it ties into, I guess, what you were saying about the cult around it is local people, working people, base people in Lovecraft's view, even if we don't view it that way, rather than a kind of glamorous cult or element to that. Yeah. And actually, just it's a complete tangent, but I think you can see when we're talking about where you draw the lines, you can draw a line from 70s occultism revival to something like the silver twilight and how that might not have come from lovecraft that you have a secret society within the town of arkham 
but it does come from later media that suggests like oh, okay you can have and you mentioned kill list as well where you get that feeling of you don't know where to turn because the cult has infiltrated all echelons of society and um, there's a similar thing there we've got at least a couple of patrons who are very into silver twilight so i'm sure they can say if there is more of a connection than we know about but i really like that element there that there's maybe other influences that go into creating the world of arkham that aren't just lovecraft's conception of what is a cult and what are what are mystical rites anything else that jumps out to you from the moon bog in terms of its interaction with folk horror or not yeah you can certainly see how you could do a much more folk spin on it. The idea of using a narrator is quite common for Lovecraft. The person mm-hmm. who's not directly subjected to the horror. Often mm-hmm. he does, you know, sometimes it is the person, like in the previous story, it was they were the person who was at the ritual, the outsider. Mm-hmm. But in this case, you're a step removed and it allows you to... The classic Lovecraftian trick of of leaving some element of the experienced undescribed and up to the viewer to or the reader to imagine, but you you can imagine a more folk horror uh, oriented experience would have the the person who's come back to the ancestral home to be mm. walking around the town the local town before he decides he's going to drain the block bog and he sees like weird things scrawled above doors or people kind of peeking out at him from yeah uh, from under their eaves and things like that. That would give a much more of a paranoid feeling, a feeling of isolation. Now, isolation is something I didn't really talk about. That's Mm. one of the key parts of folk horror when we go back to our kind of first part of it. And I think it's interesting that part of the Isolation as in no escape, is that what you mean? Well, isolation as in remove from people who could help you. The only people around you are people involved in the conspiracy against you. Yes, yeah. Maybe this is part of the, the, the resurgence in the genre over the past kind of 20 years. We live today in, in a world where you are more connected. You've got a mobile phone with you. You have the whole internet mm-hmm. at, your, at your disposal. And funnily enough, I think that probably helps the spread of the cult bits of folk horror ephemera spread. So in the past, you know, you wouldn't be able to... You, you could hear about a record or, or a film or something. Oh, well, well, I'll have to make a note of that and see if I can find it somewhere. <laughs> mm, <laughs> and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you go to a big DVD shop and you find it or you find it secondhand somewhere or even if you're trying to find something on VHS. Nowadays, you just, oh, I'll check what streaming service that's on and, and download it. Yeah. <laughs> and the same with music, you know. Even back sort of 20 years ago, you just fire up Kazar or LimeWire and instantly you've got the, the song or something claiming to be mm-hmm. the song mm-hmm. or the film. Yeah, yeah. I misunderstood you and thought when you were talking about finding these things, you weren't talking about media, but cults. And yeah. then when you said you fire up a streaming service and just join your local cult. I was like, oh, I didn't realise they just, they stream their black masses. Yeah. but so, so, so while these are lines to communicate these bits of kind of cult mm. media, you also, it's easy to make someone feel cut off from them. If you're mm. not able to use your mobile phone, then instantly you feel like you've lost a limb. And I guess that, that that's that's one of the feelings that's not necessarily, I think, in the two story, the two yeah, and probably in all the stories you've talked about, there probably isn't quite that same feeling of isolation, which is really strong in the more focused, cult, um, folk horror, um, stories we've talked about. Yeah, this ties into what I was saying about Lovecraft not really caring about explaining why his protagonists would do a certain thing, mm. and likewise 
he doesn't much care and I'm aware I'm criticizing him for something he doesn't do which is not in itself fair but he doesn't much care about explaining why someone doesn't just leave in the moon bog the narrator is finding it all creepy but he essentially persists you know over a series of days he tells himself the next day oh maybe it wasn't what maybe i was just dreaming maybe it's all a weird dream that i saw this procession how silly of me but there's not a sense of i need out and maybe that's a modern reading of it that we would be more attuned to what feels like the tropes of uh, horror setting because of everything we've consumed and that we wouldn't just necessarily go right I'm out. There doesn't need to be a sense of isolation because characters isolate themselves. Same in the festival. The mm-hmm. protagonist has gone willingly to take part in this festival. It's only really... I mean, he goes all the way into the crypt and then underground willingly and it's only right at the end that he then goes oh my goodness this is terrifying and jumps in a river yeah so yeah i guess that's that part of it what we see with feast of hemlock vale is obviously we're invited to hemlock isle to investigate and straight away we're then on this island and separated from just leaving to get that sense of of isolation and and who can you trust right out of the gate yeah it says when renowned botanist Dr. Rosa Marquez receives a strange sample from the secluded and mysterious Hemlock Isle, her instincts tell her that something is amiss. Following the recommendation of an old colleague, Dr. Marquez invites our investigators to accompany her on a survey of the island. So someone has sent a sample to this Dr. Marquez, which lures her in. It's yeah. reminding me of the Wicker Man. Yeah. It's, a, it's an anonymous message, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. About the disappearance of of the young girl, Rowan Morrison. And naturally, in The Wicker Man, it turns out to be a trap anyway. It's a trap. Yeah. It's it's quite possible that it'll be the same when we play, right? This yeah. Again, ties into, we're going to put ourselves in a situation where there's no one objective. Everyone is in, in on it. And we're going to try and <laughs> try and work our way through it. Yeah. Funnily enough, as I mentioned, Kate, the scientist, you've also got the urbanity of Alessandra Zorzi, the countess. You know, she yeah. comes obviously from high society. Yeah. You've got the folklorist in Kohaku Narakami. You've also got the very rural farmhand, Hank yeah. Sampson. So you've kind of got some touchstone points of different characters. I don't know if you can call Wilson Richards. I don't know if he, he qualifies as a policeman. He's probably straddles, if we're thinking about it in terms of class or thinking about it in terms of role, he probably straddles urban and rural. I suppose if he's got lots of tools, maybe he's more um, educated and science-based. But yeah, anyway, really interesting selection of investigators to tie into Feast of Emerald Vale. It's reminding me of Forgotten Age and having people like Leo and Ursula to come out with Forgotten Age. Or Luke Robinson, the dreamer, with the Dream Eaters. Where are we up to now? What well, I guess we do, do we want, want to say? I think just to sum up on the thread, the line from Lovecraft through folk horror into Hemlock Vale, and I, I think we, we've done that quite well. I don't mm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <Maybe> outsider. We <laughs> we've got so yeah. Certainly to folk horror, we've got outsider. We've got ancient beliefs or rituals. We've got the collision of urban and rural in some of these stories they're not maybe as accentuated in the lovecraftian stories as we might find later Mm -hmm. but 
when we go all the way back to that original um, quotation you read from the book, it points out that folk horror is less a genre and more a series of things. It's more the vibes. Yeah, you can yeah. imagine that someone making The Wicker Man might have read the festival and say, well, I want some of the vibe of the festival, but I don't want the terrifying monsters on the ground. I want a different outcome. I want to make a comment about the world we live in now or about these beliefs. I think also that the, the view of science is probably different as well, where mm. mm-hmm. it's it's a case of like, it, I mean, you even mentioned it, it's a science, it's a scientific study that's drawn us to the island, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The role of science is sort of missing in in the more folk horror focused media. It's more a rationality versus faith, isn't it? Mm-hmm. A rationality, not irrationality. So ration. It's it's a rationality. It's a, it's a it's a a modern, potentially urban belief versus an old, less rational belief. I would say, but that's maybe a bit less present in Lovecraft, especially considering that all of these beliefs turn out to be real. <laughs> there is yeah. there is something in the yeah. swamp, <laughs> so it is quite quite rational to be afraid of draining it. Yes. Yeah. Everything that the peasants said was true <laughs> and and in none of these examples you've given it's almost curiosity which has drawn the person to the place i don't know mm. what the summons from is, was it dennis you said the guy was called yeah dennis, dennis barry dennis barry i don't know what the circumstances of him summoning the southern narrator to the to the place was but in yeah i mean that's an interesting point that yeah that, he that, sent me a letter and asked me to visit him for he was lonely in the castle with no one to speak <laughs> to save the new servants and laborers he'd brought from the north so so the the part of folk horror seems to be your invitation into the 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 occult is deliberate and a key aim of the cult mm-hmm. they need mm-hmm. you there to be a sacrifice or for whatever purpose yeah however in these stories it's just curiosity you, you've stumbled upon something mm-hmm. i'm even thinking of the uh, shadow of rinsmouth mm-hmm. where someone visits the town and gets sort of involved in some kind of right but again yeah. by accident just because he happens to be sticking around yeah yeah the twist in shadow of rinsmouth is that actually he is meant he belongs to be there. there yeah <laughs> yeah and that actually that has a more scary resonance that it's inescapable and that he's drawn into it. But yes, it's not, it's not offered in terms of he's, isn't he doing an architectural tour? He's traveling the different towns of the Eastern seaboard and decides that I'll go to Innsmouth. It's something, something hilarious like that. And obviously ties in with Lovecraft's desire to then describe all of the houses in great detail. (laughs) Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. It's like my character. He's an he's an architectural aficionado. It's not me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think so. So I think I think we can see how it develops. How it's not exactly the same. And I I hope listeners already have got from this that our goal isn't to say, hey, look, folk horror exists in in Lovecraft. I don't think it does. Mm-hmm. And I think again, when we return to like what's the line between all the things, it's almost like you've got a line from Lovecraft to Arkham Files that we know quite clearly and we've walked that line a lot and we know how Arkham Files changes Lovecraft. And it's almost like a separate road joins partly along the way of folk horror that feeds into this as well. And that's what I think could be really interesting about Feast of Hemlock Vale is seeing 
how influenced has Duke been by specifically folk horror? Yeah. And how much can he draw on that within the Arkham Files setting? And will it feel then at odds with Lovecraft or will it feel like it adds to it nicely? Will we even notice? Yeah. Um, maybe we've thought about this way too much and it'll just feel like a classic Arkham adventure and we won't notice it. So I, I'm really interested about how questionable the beliefs are of the people we meet, how much there's room for doubt or room for conflict of ideas. We mm. know that there are going to be various characters that we can connect with in the campaign. So what that ends up looking like, how trustworthy they are, I'm interested in all of that as well. Anything else you'd like to end on before we finish? I don't think so. I mean, the only other thing we could have touched on is the how the, the, the changes to the setting that the Arkham Files franchise has made might impact on this this kind of relationship, the thematic connections. But maybe that's mm. that's an episode for another time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It it that to me reminds me of this point we've made before that like and you just said it right now with Lovecraft things turn out to be true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would be fascinating to have a scenario where you think there's a cult and there isn't. Yeah, yeah. Like, that would be an amazing gameplay experience, but maybe it would be disappointing as well. Like, you mentioned Carcosa and the sort of doubt, but Carcosa still ends with there being an ancient one called Hester, whichever line you take. Whether whether <laughs> it's whether it's physically real or whether it's a figment of it's your imagination. It's in your mind. It's, yeah. still, it's still happening to the character. Yeah, there isn't one version of, of Hasta that you reveal that says, like, this isn't a thing. Yeah, yeah, you're done, you wake <laughs> up and everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, you win. Dim Carcos is not a place. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess, again, that's one of the challenges of the medium. Okay, well, we've gone long. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, listener. If you've got thoughts, questions things you want to add of course you can write to us we're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com we read everything we get sent so thank you so much we're on facebook as drawn to the flame we're around the places drawn to flame you can also become a patron if you go to patreon we're there as drawn to the flame and if you become a patron you can join our wonderful discord where i'm sure people will talk more about this episode and have things they want to share so yeah if you're not a patron, please become one. And if you are a patron, really looking forward to your thoughts about the episode and and responses to it. I'm sure there's other things we could add and have missed. So yeah, as ever, we're hoping to start the conversation rather than end it. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am united all over the place. That is U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on Blue Sky and Steam and reddit and discord i'm also on instagram's d.unital so please say hello how about you frank i'm fb on blue sky so you can say hi to me there if you're on blue sky and then i'm also around the place as feb zooey glass zozo so likewise say hello and thank you for listening thank you thank you